I was speaking at a church just a couple of weekends ago, and after I'd been speaking in the morning, I was speaking to a lady in her 90s over lunch, and she was wanting to ask me about what I meant when I talked about the churches being closed. I spent 10 or 15 minutes before teaching through Psalm 77, explaining what had happened in January, February and March of 2020 when we produced the film The Draft. We believed that we were being called to ask um, to pray that the church would close in order that the church would respond in faithfulness to the state of affairs that we're in. And the lady had wanted to know what I meant by that. She was obviously struggling to process it, which is fair enough. Um, I have written about this in a new book called The Glorious Few. Most of you will have heard of it. If you've not read it, it's there. And you can read a whole chapter entitled The Draft, A Conscription of Conscience. But in speaking to her about it, I have been rethinking about how that sounds to people and trying to get people to understand. I'm not wanting to be bombastic and just or sensational, stand up and talk about something. What we're wanting to do is help people to understand what we believe the Lord was doing. And we don't we don't stand in this place because we think it's one option among many. We believe this is what the Lord has said to us in advance. In one sense, we have no choice. So I've wanted to rethink about this thing about churches and what do we mean when we think about the churches should have closed in 2020? Um, what did I mean by that? What do I mean now? And what are the implications for the response to that that I want to talk about? So initially, just to mention that in Revelation, as we should all know, Revelation 1 to 3, Jesus himself stands amongst the churches, the lampstands, and says to all of them, essentially, Jesus had said to them, strengthen that which remains and is about to die. There was a precipice type moment. Sort yourselves out or I'll remove you. That's essentially a power, horrible paraphrase of Revelation 1 to 3. And in thinking about the specific way that individual churches, the Lord spoke to them about specific issues, so too today I believe that that is true. I believe that individual churches have specific issues that they need to repent about, some more than others. But that Apart from this individual sense in which the Lord is speaking to individual congregations, which is such a wonderfully tender, gentle thing, as it is when he comes alongside us. I had that just recently, a sense of being brought to repentance about something, and it was just with gentleness and with love and affection. And he does that for churches. But aside from that, I think there is an overall transcendent, overarching reality in the church that I want to speak about today when I think of the 90-year-old lady who didn't quite understand what I was meaning. And I want to talk about it in the form of a pie chart. Don't accuse me of being um, inaccurate, because of course I'll be inaccurate. This isn't meant to be an accurate statistical mathematical graph. I think this is just an instinctive sense in which this is what I see of the church. This is what I th this, If I had to put my money somewhere, so to speak, this is what I would say, that 85% of the church, back in March 2020, when the churches were forcibly closed by the government, but I think under the hand of the Lord, I think the Lord closed the churches, 85% of the church were oblivious and remain so. The, the most ironic, prophetic utterance 
that I've heard in the last two years. Well, what a wonderful day to be here. Oh my goodness, it's so nice to see you all. And if I say this to you, you have to say it back to me. You haven't changed a bit in two years. <laughs> I think that 14%, I would say roughly, their response was being up in arms, but still nonetheless oblivious to what the Lord was doing and is doing and still saying today. And that there is 1%, maybe there is, maybe there's less than 1% of churches in this country, in this Bible-soaked country through the, through the centuries, who are listening and this question about what does it mean to be a 1% church, well, this is what I want to try and sh share in this video today. Some traits of those broad brushstroke categories, the 85%, the 14%, and the 1%. What are the characteristics? In other words, of the kind of church that I believe we should all be today of a 1% church. Let me go through them in order. Firstly, the churches that I think constitute the vast majority of the church, 85%, let's just say 85%, are churches who are, who were and still are totally oblivious. Pastors who wanted to shift all their ministry online, prioritized online meetings and streaming and developing technology and things like that. That was their spiritual discernment, apparently, at that time in world and church history, was to do that. Congregations, as a result, that were clueless because the people leading the congregations were clueless. People going to church meetings at some point with, with masks on and, you know, protective personal equipment. And, you know, just this, just this bizarre reality in which the Lord, I think, was just saying, can you not see yourselves? Can you not see how irrelevant the church has become to a godless government that should be being called to repent from a place of repentance. So the 85% just totally oblivious to any thought that it might have been the Lord himself who was doing that. Secondly, that the churches that I would say roughly about 14% churches who were up in arms in response to a godless government discriminating and closing the churches and overstepping their mark. Christian concerns influence at the time, despite their fine work, was a disaster because they placated those 14 percenters because they wanted the government to be somehow called to account, even though the church were clearly not repentant themselves. In a time of famine, you don't go and burn a country's crops. In a storm, you don't shut down the lighthouses, take a cricket bat to the lamp. And when the nation faces a life and death crisis, you don't close down the one source of true hope that Scotland has turned to for centuries. In other words, hypocrisy, probably the main thing that the world hates about the church. Pastors petitioning the government, even though they themselves weren't sobered by what was going on. Thirdly, churches... This is the 1%, if that, the churches who are listening. This is the church that I was speaking at a couple of weeks ago. It was a blessing to me in retrospect to hear their ministry the week after I spoke. And I knew from what was being said that they had, or the pastor had listened. 
Not so much to me, but to the Lord. A pastor who was beginning to not only listen, but ask the right questions, start thinking about the right implications. One of the things that strikes me as being most peculiar is that there seems to be... It's an unthinkable thing that God would have chosen to close the churches. Despite the fact that that is exactly what he did in earlier centuries when Israel were sent into exile into Babylon or where the temple was closed, if you read the book of Malachi or the book of Jeremiah, through the prophetic narratives, we see God doing this. And if you just take the invasion of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, and then the sending of the people of God into Babylon as a comparable equivalent thought for us today thinking about the church, why is it such a struggle for so many people to conceive that God would do that? Does that not in itself speak of a total oblivion to the state of the world, the state of the church? And so ultimately it's a biblical literacy issue. If you know your Bible, if you know how God has worked in the past, it shouldn't come as that much of a shock. Sure, it will be jolting. Sure, it's uncomfortable. Sure, there's a lament, but it's not ungodly. It's not unlike God to do that. What could the consequence of this be, that the church was closed by the Lord and yet 85%, 14, 99% of the church have refused to listen? Well, I think it's, you could postulate, and I'm not interested in doing that, there could be any number of different things that the Lord does. It could be natural, it could be man-made in some ways. Um, but I think, when I think of this, I think of Gethsemane, and I think of the opportunity that Jesus' friends, Peter, James, and John, had to pray and intercede and support the Lord, their rabbi and their Lord and their saviour. The, and they fell asleep. And then Jesus came back and woke them up. And then they fell asleep. But what happened eventually was that Jesus just left them sleeping. That, I think, is probably the most frightening, depressing thought, is that God isn't going to do anything else. That the opportunity has been wasted, that the opportunity has been squandered to awake. Remember the words in Revelation 3, 1 and 2, to Sardis, wake up. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Strengthen that which remains and is about to die. We did a whole series on that a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, if you want to watch that, with church leaders thinking about that. To close, what do I think a 1%, this is the church I spoke at, and this is what I see and hear coming from them now, what do what do 1% churches this 1% this tiny minority who are listening and what does this look what do they look like in other words what should all churches spirit filled bible based churches what should they be these are just six six or seven quick things firstly they should be full of cellar this is the psalm that i taught through part through couple of weeks ago psalm 77 asaph psalms in general psalm 50 and then i think it's 73 to 83 there's 12 psalms of asaph and they're for communal lament communal response a bit like the book of lamentations the book the church in the one percent should be sell they should stop and think that's what the word cellar means in other words repent stop and think isn't enough because it's, we need more than stopping and thinking we need fruit in keeping with repentance Churches in the 1% should be, they should have 
biblical literacy. They should they should understand this is what I was saying. They should understand that God has done this kind of thing before. Why would he not do it again? Do we know who he is? Do we know what he's like? This father for whom we exist. Three, I think there should be a focus on the end times and eschatological awareness and yet in a sense assuming a delay not assuming that it's going to be in our lifetime or some kind of focus on date setting, but anticipating the delay, that's Matthew 25, having oil in our lamps, but planning a generational way of seeing the church move forward through reformation, I think, travail, despising, and so on and so forth. I'd commend John Piper's book to you, Come Lord Jesus, because in that book, he emphasizes something that I think is worth thinking about, that we none of us should assume that we have more than seven years before Jesus returns. Not going into why that is now, but if you want to have an understanding of that from the book of Daniel and so on, read that book. Fourthly, churches in the 1%, I, th I think there should be letters and statements of repentance. Let me ask you, why is it, do you think, that it's so rare and unusual for people to simply change their mind. Selah means stop and think. If you read, say, Psalm 77, you see about three or four of them punctuating the song. Stop and think. I think you can infer from that that there would be a, a change of mind, and there was for Asaph and for the corporate use of the song, there was a change of mind. When was the last time you heard somebody change their mind? When was the last time that your leader, I'm not talking about rudiments of the of the gospel, of course, or scriptural theological issue. I'm just talking about when was there a sense of the mind being changed? I can give you an example. Three or four years ago, Mary and I recognized that we needed to publicly repent about going to a church in which there were female elders. That's just one example. But it was a it was a moment where we stopped, thought, repented. There were there was an action. There was a fruit in keeping with repentance. One percent churches, I think, issue statements of clarification. I think there are letters and statements of repentance in some cases. Where are they? You can see what I mean now. I hope where the response from the church is this list of pastors up in arms because their churches have been closed and they think it's a disgrace. Where are the letters of repentance? There should be statements, letters, expressions of lament. Where are they? I think churches that are listening will issue such statements where they have had to repent. If you think about the churches in Revelation in those first three chapters, imagine if they had all repented. Imagine what their response would have been. What would it have sounded like for Sardis, the church in Sardis, to have repented. Use words. Take words to the Lord. Take words, in some cases, into the public domain. I would say, fifthly, there should be in 1% churches divine pathos. I've taught on this recently. I've written a chapter about it in Body Zero. Please do read that and listen to that. It's, it's critical. This is what a church that is listening begins to, to say. I realize how much we don't see. I'm beginning to see how much I don't see. I'm beginning to feel how much I don't feel. 
that's the beginning. That's the inception and seedbed of divine pathos. It's the prophetic gifting of sharing in something of the Lord himself and how he feels about his bride. How do you feel about your spouse, husband? How do you feel about your, your spouse, wife? You feel deeply in love with them. You would die for them. How does Jesus feel about a church whom he has closed? Such How did Jesus, how did the Lord feel about Israel sending them into Babylon? I think sixth, there should be in 1% churches increasingly spontaneous acts of evangelism. I think in personal private places of renewal as a result of listening and then responding, there is a natural sense in which people begin to take the gospel proclamation, the only hope of salvation more seriously. There's like a dawning of eternity that kind of comes upon you. And I can testify about that in the last few years, recognizing my own de-radicalization through the de-radicalized church. I'd encourage us all to think about that. None of us evangelize by proxy. We're all called in some way to share the gospel. And that will involve fear and trembling, and it will involve the despising of an antichrist world. Just as an aside, you might want to read uh, Ian Murray's book on the life of J.C. Ryle, who was prolific in gospel tract writing and delivery at the docks in Liverpool, the first bishop of Liverpool, which incidentally is near to where I was speaking the other day. Finally, I think a church in the 1% will have a relearning of what joy means. I think joy is so misunderstood. There's this sense in which it's not its not that there isn't joy in that. It's just that we've not really understood what joy is. And the Bible teaches, doesn't it, so clearly about the fact that you should rejoice in suffering. Wouldn't it be wonderful if more churches issued statements and letters of repentance that included testimony about just that? The worst thing I think, the most depressing thing I can think of as we've come through the last two or three years is that the Lord was just to leave us as we are. In Gethsemane, just just left to sleep. And therefore, how much danger you may be in, your church may be in, leader of a church or congregant, if you're not the kind of church that is listening, responding, asking the right questions, being prepared to be closed. As hard as this may be to take in, I think that 99% of churches have not stopped, they have not thought, and they're still not listening. And therefore, should still be closed today more than three years later. Churches that are in the 1% category should be open. (laughs) Open in that closed way, open in that cellar, sobered, stunned way. Let me just read you this in closing. I was reading just one of Asaph's psalms this morning, Psalm 76. Listen to this in verse 5 and 6. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. 
They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Verse 7, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. Men of war, unable to use their hands. Both rider and horse lay stunned. I wrote about this in Body Zero a number of years ago. I worked on a stroke ward in a hospital where people had had strokes, momentary disconnections of oxygen from the brain, rendering a human body like a stunned horse or a stunned, per, unable to use their hands, unable to speak, unable to wipe their backside. We have no real concept of the fear of the Lord. We have no real concept of what it would mean to be sobered, to be arrested, to be stopped in order that we might come to truly hear the Lord speak because Jesus is coming and we're not ready. And I feel a sense of jealousy for that in the church when I read it happening in history and I see it happening in the corporate life of Israel. Oh, that it would happen again. And how different it is to pastors queuing up to complain about a godless government. We need to understand the Lord, the one we say that we know and love. And that we would come to truly be stunned, horse and rider. Father, I pray now, even as we've thought about your church, your body, your bride, of which most of us are a part. I pray for a miracle by your spirit that there would be an awakening that there would be an equivalent of Peter, James and John standing in Gethsemane so as not to fall into slumber and miss what the Lord needed and what the Lord wanted and what the Lord was saying. And I pray, Jesus, in great mercy and grace, would you cause your people to arise, awaken and arise, stand to attention and do that which you say. I pray that there would be an increase in churches that listen to what you're saying and within which that there would be no non-negotiables, that there would be a willingness to do exactly what you say, just as you stood among the lampstands. I pray for grace and mercy. I pray for an awakening. I pray for mercy, that there would be a stirring, that there would be more leaders, more leaders who come to recognise how little they feel of your heart. I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Father, for your glory. Maranatha. Amen. Amen.